The other day I encountered a message by Gregory Holyfield, Associate Dean at Memphis College of Urban and Theological Studies at Union University, who also is a book review editor for the Journal of the Evangelical Homiletic Society. The message moved me in my spirit. The poignancy of his introduction is what prompts me to share it with you this morning and see if it strikes a sensitive chord within your own soul. Always winter, but never Christmas. Is that how you feel? That memorable line comes to us from C.S. Lewis's beloved children's classic, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. For me, there are no words that better describe this season in our world's history than those. Always winter, but never Christmas. It was just last winter, he writes, in China that the white witch first cast her spell that still has us in its grip. Under gray skies, she introduced a microscopic virus into our atmosphere that spread around the globe as rapidly as fingers of frost across a January window pane. And before long, people the world over were confined indoors, schools closed, and economies froze. Even after the calendar's pages flipped from spring to summer, there was still a chill in our nation's air from social unrest, wildfires, hurricanes, and a rancorous presidential race. Summer gave way to fall. And then the year-end holidays now are again upon us. But it doesn't seem very much like Christmas. Let's skip Christmas this year. That's the title of a song by Rodney Crowell that came out a couple of years ago. Listen to these lyrics. They sound almost prophetic now. We'll tell our family and friends that we still love them a ton, but we've just taken ill and we won't be much fun. We're contagious, we fear. Can't you imagine the sneer if we skip Christmas this year? New York Times best-selling author John Grisham once wrote a little book titled Skipping Christmas, and it was later made into a movie called Christmas with the Cranks, starring Tim Allen as Luther and Jamie Lee Curtis as his wife Nora. And after dropping off their daughter Paige at the airport the Sunday after Thanksgiving for a year-long Peace Corps assignment, Luther and Nora trudged back home, and Nora was nostalgic over Christmas's past, while Luther was fuming over all the hustle and bustle and costs and demands of their annual Christmas rituals. And then he had an idea. Luther proposed that they just skip Christmas and go on a cruise instead. It takes a while, but Nora gradually warms up to the idea. Their neighbors, though, don't take kindly to the crank's decision not to decorate their house that year, as it will likely cost them the prize for the best decorated block in the city. Their local charities aren't happy either. The local Boy Scout troop is upset over the crank's refusal to purchase a Christmas tree. The police are angered when they don't buy a calendar. The firemen are mad that they won't be buying a, a fruitcake from them. And the guy who sells them their stationery is, is upset when he loses their annual order of engraved greeting cards. Poor Luther and Nora find themselves the objects of everyone's derision and can't wait to get out of town. i got to tell you, I can relate to that. 
Matter of fact, I was looking very much forward to getting out of town on Tuesday and flying to Scotland for the next month. However, that trip has been canceled. I wonder how many people feel that way right now. To be sure, the events of 2020 have certainly not measured up to our high hopes and expectations, have they? The idea of Christmas joy, it seems, may appear to many as a precious but fleeting commodity. That is, of course, if you base your idea of Christmas joy on what the world pitches instead of what the Father provides. He has provided us Jesus, a Savior who, in the midst of a trouble, time of social and spiritual and political unrest, would bring joy inconceivable. Joy inconceivable. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 61, if you would. At the risk of being redundant, I want to outline some things about Christmas joy to you today. It's not going to center on necessarily just one text, but many. But I think we're going to home base right here in Isaiah 61. If you remember correctly, when Jesus first came on the scene and unloaded his ministry at the synagogue in Luke chapter 4, he quoted these words of Isaiah Beginning in verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Skip down to verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation and he has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the earth brings forth its sprouts and as a garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. Isn't that a great picture? Isn't that a great picture of who we should be? The idea of this joy is found, you know, all throughout Scripture, Old Testament and New. This kind of joy. This joy brings to God's kingdom. This joy belongs to God's kingdom. God rejoices. Jesus lives in the joy of his Father's realm, his Father's house. Even in the midst of incomprehensible sorrow during human history's most despicable, deplorable, yet spiritually defining moment, the crucifixion of an innocent Messiah... Jesus ultimately had joy in his mind, even while sorrow was in his heart. Blessing, not a curse. A table of feasting rather than a tomb of despair. The writers of Scripture pinpoint this revelation with emphatic declaration in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says this, He was willing to die a shameful death on the cross because of the joy he knew would be his afterwards. 
Now he is seated in the place of highest honor beside God's throne in heaven. Oh, people. I, as your pastor, want to appeal to you humbly. You want to have full joy? Stop fretting about what's going on in the world and how you should react to the mask mandate or anything else that comes down from a limited government that God has a short leash on and recognize our response should be Jesus' response of humility. Humility. What did Jesus do when he was on the scene? You know, I've, I've gone over it and over it and over it in my mind so many times. He didn't bow before Caesar. He didn't bend before Pilate. He paid the tax. He donned the towel of a servant and he washed disciples' feet. He picked up his cross and he carried it to a cruel hill of execution and he went to the grave all for the joy that was set before him, not the joy now, the joy later. He knew it would be his afterward. And we know he's coming again. And we hear all this talk about authority and who has the authority and Jesus has the authority. You know what kind of Jesus authority there is? Jesus said it very clearly in John chapter 10 when he said this. Oh, let me start in verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Then in verse 17, here's the authority. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me. You see that? No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This is the commandment I received from my Father. I appeal to you, act in humility according to the model of Christ. That is the good news of great joy. You see, even though the prophet Isaiah identified the Messiah as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief in Isaiah 53, throughout the New Testament, Jesus repeatedly talked about and prayed for his joy to be in us and that our joy would be made full. John 15, verse 11. These things I've spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. What things is he speaking about? Things like as productive branches are connected to the vine, so too we, when we abide in Jesus, bear much fruit. God hears our prayers. The Father is glorified. And when we obey Christ's command to love one another as he has loved us, we are immersed in and we are saturated with and abide in his love. And two chapters later, in the midst of his high priestly prayer in John 17, which Chris is going to preach about in a few weeks, some people think that 
these, this prayer of Jesus in John 17 may have been just hours before he was betrayed and crucified. Jesus interceded not only for his disciples, but I believe for you and me as well. In John 17, 13, he says, I'm coming to you now, Father, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. And yet in between those two texts, in John 15 and John 17, Jesus unveils another disturbing truth about joy. He says, full joy in Christ is often preceded by a season of suffering in this world. Preparing his disciples for his impending death and departure by crucifixion, burial, resurrection. He teaches them a very hard truth that we are reluctant as Americans to receive. Sometimes the very thing that brings the most intense sorrow yields the most immense joy in the end. John chapter 16, verse 16. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again a little while and you will see me. Verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Right? little side note here, whenever my wife retells the story of the birth of one of our children, which was particularly hard, she remembers that pain pretty vividly. The pain was so intense that she instantly remembers clearly begging someone, please shoot me. But John Ortberg wrote that Jesus' point is not that a woman can't bring the pain to memory, but his point is that the joy of giving life outweighs the pain of giving birth. What starts in pain ends in joy in that context. Whatever pain you think that you're going through right now and I'm going through right now, we don't even, we can't even fathom the joy that God's going to bring to us through it if we weather it the way he wants us to. Don't miss the metaphor. The pains of childbirth pale and compared to the joy of the life that is born into the world through that pain. Don't miss the deeper meaning. If it weren't for the sorrow of the cruel cross, there would never be the joy of an empty tomb. If it weren't for the agony of Christ's death, there would never be a resurrection. The joy of eternal life in Christ far outweighs the sorrow of whatever we must suffer and die to in this world. In other words, and it bears repeating, sometimes the very thing that brings the most intense sorrow yields the most immense joy. Again, John 16, verse 22, Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. No one can take your joy away from you. If you're in Christ. Verse 24, Until now you've asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full prayer. Verse 33, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you might have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage, I've overcome the world. We're looking for heaven on earth now, it's not going to happen. 
Jesus said, you have tribulation in the world now, but I've overcome that world, and someday it's going to be a world without tribulation when I come back. Not yet. Here's the threefold thrust of what Jesus is teaching in this passage on joy. There is a principle to get to grasp. Number one, God brings joy into our lives by means of transformation, not necessarily by substitution. That's verse 21. You can read that later. Secondly, there is a promise here to believe that God brings joy into our lives by the means of prayer. I just read that in verse 24. Ask in my name and you will receive so that your joy will be made full. And then third, there's a position to claim that God brings joy by means of the peace of Christ. And that's verse 33. In other words, in Jesus, we can overcome anything that this world throws at us because he overcame. Again, throughout the Old Testament, especially in the minor prophets, the focus of prophetic revelation nearly always culminates in the future joy that is promised to a once wayward people who will eventually come home after an intense season of suffering. And the transformation is palpable. Zechariah chapter 8 gives us a very clear example. If you want to look at that, Zechariah chapter 8 gives us a clear example of this promised future joy unforeseeable to many. It was a joy unforeseeable and still is to some people. To a nation in deep distress, Zechariah shows joy. The prophet unveils the future consummation of Israel's history during the millennial reign of Christ upon his return when the entire nation will finally recognize Jesus as their Lord and Savior, which they did not receive at his first coming. Zechariah, by the way, predicted more about the Messiah than any other prophet except Isaiah. Zechariah chapter 8, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath, I am jealous for her. Thus says the Lord, I will return to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts will be called the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women will again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each man with his staff in his hand because of his age. And the streets of the city will be filled with boys and girls playing in its streets. Doesn't that sound good to you? You don't see that anymore. So we can relate to what Israel may be feeling here. Thus says the Lord of hosts, if it is too difficult in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, will it also be too difficult in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, I'm going to save my people from the land of the east and from the land of the west, and I will bring them back, and they will live in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in truth and righteousness. The rejected will be restored. Their poverty will become prosperity. If you look down in verse 12 and 13, you'll see that. For there will be peace for the seed. The vine will yield its fruit. The land will yield its produce. And the heavens will give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to inherit all these things. It's going to be a blessing. 
The fasts will become feasts. Verses 18 and 19. And then later on in verses 20 to 22, the foreigners will become family. This is what Zechariah promised the nation of Israel who's deeply in distress waiting for Messiah. What's the bottom line in all of this? According to the Apostle Paul's exhortation in Romans 14, verse 17, it's all about the joy of living in the light of the Father's salvation. It's living in that light. What you know to be true. Romans chapter 14, verse 17 says this, For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Joy is the character of God's kingdom and should characterize God's people. Instead, what characterizes God's people today? Do I even have to answer that question? It pains me, and it should pain you, that the people of God are so busy and unrest and arguing and screaming and yelling about this and that and the other thing about what's going on around us and missing the whole idea of giving people hope for the kingdom that is at hand in Jesus. We have to remember that joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship, however. It is a consequence. Right? If you're not showing joy, well, what does that mean? Are you rooted and grounded in Christ? Now, there's a difference, as as Ivan says, between joy and happiness, giddiness, jumping up and down and having a big party, right? That's a part of joy. But in a time of suffering, you don't find that. It's a different kind of joy. And it only can come from the peace that Christ gives you, you. I said this before, you cannot make yourself joyful, at least not for very long. Not a fake joy. True joy is not self-motivated. You just can't will it into existence. It's not personally manufactured. You can't fire it up, drum it up, or keep it up for very long. It's not financially purchased. It cannot be bought, it cannot be sold. And it is not politically arranged. It cannot be legislated. True joy comes only as the result of hearing God's voice in the midst of our pain and deciding to live in obedient response to Him. Right? Only He, only God, can restore our joy and renew our strength. And rest assured, no matter how dark your cave, He will find you there. No matter how deep your abyss, He will descend there. No matter how cold and lonely your prison may be, he can release you. He is a relentless pursuer of God's people. This is, my friends, the Christmas story. This is the good news of the kingdom of God and that it has come near in the person of Jesus Christ. This is the message that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost of all. As the Apostle Paul wrote, this is the good news of great joy which was delivered by the angel to the shepherds and it was not just for them. It said it was for all the people that in the midst of a world turned in and focused almost entirely upon itself, 
in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Yet before that good news of great joy was given to the shepherds, there was much disruption in the life of a young couple from Nazareth in Galilee. In the days between Gabriel's announcement of the pregnancy and the actual birth itself, think about what Mary and Joseph had to endure. They endured much in the way of sorrow and suffering from people's heartless and callous reactions to their judgmental whispers and their raised eyebrows to say nothing of the journey over hostile and rough terrain that they had to make only to find a city swelled to capacity, no available lodging save a cave spotted with urine and carpeted with animal feces acting as a birthing room for the king of kings. Mary could not, in her wildest dreams, have anticipated that when Gabriel announced the birth. Yet, through her trust in the God who does the impossible, Mary responded to her pregnancy as a virgin and her cousin's greeting with majestic humility, revealing that even in the midst of her impending difficulties she could still possess joy. Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1 and verse 46. This has come to be known as Mary's Magnificat. This is what Mary says when she met her cousin. My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. How could she say that knowing that she was going to endure all of this stuff? For he has regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. And he has brought down rulers from their thrones. And he has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. You know what this is? This is the joy set before her, before she endured all the pain that she had to go through. Just as her son did. How would you and I have responded? How do we respond? In a post I ran across a few Christmases ago entitled Through and Beyond Suffering, The Joy of Christmas, the author wrote these words. Listen to them, because they're instructive to us. He said, the problem with Christmas these days isn't with Jesus, it's with us. More precisely, it's with our great expectations, to borrow a phrase from Charles Dickens. Michael Knox Barron talks about the modern dream of a painless world. Barron calls it the great illusion of modern liberalism. I would say it's even the great illusion of modern conservatism. When something painful happens, Barron adds, one's instinct is to be outraged, as though the universe had made a gigantic mistake. 
But there has been no mistake. We've been created to know joy and also to know misery. You see, the utopian vision neglects the fact that this is a fallen world and a fallen world is filled with human suffering. And that's something we don't want to think about, especially at Christmas time. But you can't understand Christmas if you ignore human suffering. Think of the words of some of the carols that we sing in hopes and fears of all the years. Or, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. Think of the pain of Joseph, who who first thought that Mary had been unfaithful to him. Think of all the mothers in and around Bethlehem who saw their young children slaughtered from Herod. Think about the words of, of old Simeon to Mary when he said to her, when she presented Jesus at the temple, a sword will pierce through your own soul. Then think about what this baby came to do. To die on a cross for us. Sure, Christmas is about joy. But it is a joy that is reached through and never loses sight of human suffering in a fallen world. As we sing that glorious carol, Joy to the World, we proclaim that Christ comes to make his blessings flow. How far? far as the curse is found. That's human suffering. There is joy in Christmas even in the midst of a curse. You see, Christmas joy is for those who hurt. Those who dwell in darkness, Scripture says, will see a what? A great light. The darker the world becomes, the brighter Christians should shine. Jesus said, it is the hungry who will be filled. It's those who mourn who will rejoice. Do you hurt? Then rejoice in the baby who has redeemed your sin and suffering. Are you in darkness? Look to his light and rejoice in that light. Suffering is the reason for the season. Christ came amid suffering because we suffer. He came to suffer. But our joy lies in the fact that Christ's redemptive suffering points to an eternal weight of glory. Amen? Christ's coming unmasks the promise of a joy unfathomable. Mary's opening words in this Magnificat point again back to one of my favorite passages of joy in the Old Testament. Her opening words, right? And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Go back now to where we began, to Isaiah chapter 61. And look at verse 10 again. What are the opening words? I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. That's where that line of Mary's Magnificent Cat came from, right here in this text. He's wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. And on it goes. It's not just Mary who understood this joy. I also see an amazing parallel between these words of Isaiah here 
talking about wrapping me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks herself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. For as the earth brings forth sprouts and the garden causes the things sown in it to spring up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. You know, I see an amazing parallel here also to another text of joy in the New Testament. It's Jesus' description of the prodigal son's father's controversial reaction to his wayward son's homecoming as he erupts with a joy uncontainable. Luke chapter 15. Turn there if you want to. Luke chapter 15. Verse 22. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Here it is. It's robes of righteousness, right? Being wrapped around this son. Robes of salvation. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. Bring out the fattened calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. I love that. I love that picture. What in the world do you suppose would bring God the most joy in this world? Think about that in light of this passage. What is it? Do you think, do you think for one moment, now forgive me for this, but I'm going to hit you now. I'm going to hit somebody, I know it. Do you think that heaven would be rejoicing on a large scale format if Donald Trump had won the election? You think that's what would bring heaven great joy? You think that they're rejoicing right now because Biden won the election? Do you think there are high fives and fist bumps going on all around the throne room when the market is up? Or when another church gets sidetracked or sidelined by arguments surrounding their response to coronavirus? Really? Does that bring heaven joy? Henri now has insightfully written, God rejoices, God rejoices, he said, not because the problems of this world have been solved, not because all human pain and suffering has come to an end, nor because thousands of people have been converted and are now praising him for his goodness. No, God rejoices because one of his children who was lost has been found. What I am called to do, he says, is to enter into that joy. That joy. Isn't that the church's commission? To enter into that joy? Without question, the central force of this parable, the nucleus around which everything in this story revolves, is the glamour of grace and the joy it produces. Heaven, heavenly and earthly celebration over a spiritual wanderer come home is the recurring theme of Luke chapter 15. Jesus gave it a triple thrust emphasis in verses 5 to 7. He, he shows uncharacteristic excitement over a once lost sheep that was found. One sheep. Verses 8 to 10, unmatched exuberance over one lost coin that was found. And then here in verses 22 to 24, it's incomparable extravagance over one lost son that was found. It all points to joy. It's an invitation to joy uncontainable. It presents God's grace as almost too glamorous, too attractive, too easy, too joyful. Shouldn't the father just tone it down a bit? I mean, turn it back a notch, right? We wouldn't want to give people the wrong impression. I don't think any of us are truly comfortable with the image of a God who throws parties, are we? 
And yet this is what this text says he's doing. It's the kind of, of thing that goes against the preconceived picture we have of God being this sober, serious, and so, solemn deity and stiff and just, you know, ready to bludgeon people. The fact is, when Jesus described God's kingdom in his parables, he describes on many occasions what? A lavish banquet, right? A feast, a full-blown party is often the central occasion. You can read it through his parables. You can read it in Revelation chapter 19. As a matter of fact, we just went through this in our Bible study. Revelation 19 in verse 6 Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Amen. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And then he said to me, write this down. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. And you know what a wedding feast to the Jew meant? An all-out, no-holds-barred party, right? You read about it, it, study it. It went on for days, included the entire community and extended family and friends and was usually pretty raucous. Now, I'm not suggesting that Jesus approved of junkedness or immoral, loose behavior. What I'm suggesting to you, however, is that when Jesus talked about heaven's kind of rejoicing, he's he's inviting us to participate in. It's not about a bunch of rigid, stuffed shirt, way too intense people sitting around a cafeteria table, afraid to crack a smile with each other for fear of appearing like they're somehow enjoying themselves. It's about a full-fledged, pull-out-the-stops, once-in-a-lifetime event that has no conceivable limit or end. Sounds like just what the father spontaneously and excitedly set in motion on his prodigal son's return, isn't it? Sounds just like what this same father had to plead with his snub-nosed, holier-than-thou oldest son to come in and attend. And again, I cannot help but return to the words penned by the prophet Isaiah over 600 years before Christ preached this parable, looking to Israel's future joy as they return to their Messiah right here in Isaiah. Look at the words. It sounds just like the prodigal son. For he has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You see... Friends, if Jesus tells us anything about the Father's heart, he reveals that joy is the character of God's kingdom and should characterize God's people. Why? What reason do we have to rejoice? One, in one writer's words, from God's perspective, one hidden act of repentance, one little gesture of selfless love, one moment of true forgiveness is all that is needed to bring God from his throne to run to his returning son and fill the heavens with the sound of divine joy. Shouldn't that be what we're focused on right now? There's no greater time, no greater place, no greater uh, milieu that we can preach the gospel in and and share the good news of, of great joy with people than right now when the world is so dark 
We cannot let Satan sidetrack us into stupid things that make no difference whatsoever in eternity. We need to be focused on what the Father is focused on. One sinner coming home. And he's given us that power and that message to communicate. Get that picture into your head. I need to get it into mine. Whenever a person comes to Christ and sincerely asks for forgiveness, a celebration is in order. Heaven is joyful. Why shouldn't we be? What is there to be so joyful about in the midst of a world that is upended? Right there in Isaiah 61. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. Aren't you joyful about your salvation? What a picture of the heart of our Heavenly Father who desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth before it's too late. He doesn't want anybody to perish, but all to come to repentance. How rich in mercy and goodness he is, huh? How willing is he to forgive us, cleanse us from every sin, and clothe us with the righteousness of his Son, Jesus Christ? It's interesting that Jesus entered his life clothed with the skin of mankind in abject humility. He was joy unrecognizable. That's what Christmas is. I almost hate to say it. But Jesus masked himself. He did not come in the regalia of royalty, but in the rags of poverty. He shed himself of every vestige of nobility and he took upon himself the garb of a servant. And at one point, he stooped to wash the disciples' feet as a symbol of not only his humility, but also of his willingness to lavish us with unheard of grace. That is, a, that is something that we need so badly right now. To receive grace and to issue grace. He lavished us with unheard of grace, purifying us and exalting us to a privileged yet undeserved status. He humbled himself, even to the point of suffering death, the most humiliating kind of death, death by torture, by crucifixion. And you know why? He did it for you and he did it for me. And not when we were friends, by the way, but when we were at odds with him. We were enemies with him. God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He who never committed a single sin in his entire existence became saddled with the burden of ours so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Through faith in Christ, we've been clothed with the garments of salvation. He's wrapped us with a robe of righteousness. And as the hymn says, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is shifting sand. Isaiah 61.10 again, I will rejoice greatly because he's clothed me with salvation. Wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. If you want a glimpse of what he has done for all who come by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, just read Ephesians chapter 1. 
Or Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And because of that, we have joy inexpressible. Joy inexpressible. That's what we can have because we're in Christ. In 1 Peter, in chapter 1, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly, what? Hang your head? No, rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, here it is again, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You know what? We've got new clothes with this robe of righteousness that we've been wrapped with. That's all the Father sees. That's all he's interested in. This new righteousness that we have because of Christ. He's not interested in our past sins, the mere thought of which creates an atmosphere of sorrow and depression. Rather, he is focused on the present truth that we were washed, we were sanctified, we were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's fixated on our future glory just as he is for the nation of Israel, all of which constitute an occasion for exuberant joy, inexpressible, as it says in Isaiah 61.10. These are beautiful verses. They're filled with the joy of celebration. Look at the greater context, as I read earlier. He's giving us a garland for ashes, gladness for mourning, praise for a spirit of fainting, instead of shame, a double portion, instead of humiliation, a shout of joy. Suffering replaced with joy. And we're called to fully enter into that joy. Not for ours alone, but for anyone who comes to Christ. You know, that's a joy that is far beyond what the world can offer. It's heaven's joy. Again, Henry Nouwen says, I have to learn to steal all the real joy there is to steal and lift it up for others to see. Yes, I know that not everybody has been converted yet. That there is not peace everywhere that all pain has not yet been taken away. But still, I see people turning and returning home. I don't have to wait until all is well, but I can celebrate every little hint of the kingdom that is at hand. Every little hint. Joy never denies the sadness, but transforms it into fertile soil for more joy. So we can say with the psalmist David, you have turned my mourning into joyful dancing. You have taken away my clothes of mourning and clothed me with joy that I might sing praises to you and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give you thanks forever and ever. That's Psalm 30, verses 11 and 12. 
Again, joy is the character of God's kingdom and should characterize God's people. We have good reason to celebrate. Through faith in Christ, he's clothed us with the garments of salvation. And at the bottom, the last thing is that he's embellished us with a garden of grace. That's verse 11 in Isaiah 61. For as the earth spring forth its sprouts, as the garden causes things to be sown in it to spring up, so the Lord will cause righteousness and praise to spring up before all the nations. This picture of a garden bringing forth sprouts, doesn't it remind you of another joy on the other side of suffering passage? It does me. Psalm 126. If you're familiar with that psalm at all, Listen to it. When the Lord brought back the captive ones out of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap with joyful shouting. He who goes to and fro weeping, carrying his bag of seed, shall indeed come again with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. See that restore our captivity there in verse 4? The psalmist's prayer was that God would finish the restoration completely. Historically, that's what he's talking about. That these, that these uh, the captives returning would be restored completely. In other words, he cries, the work's not done, Lord. Bring back all the captives. And for Israel, that cry is still heard. And for the church, the cry is equally as fervent. You know what we're crying out right now? We should be. Fill the kingdom, Lord. Fill the kingdom. Bring all those who are held in captivity into the joy of salvation. That should be our prayer. Let them return with overflowing numbers like the streams in the south. The NIV translates that, restore our fortune like the streams in the Negev. The Negev is a desert south of Judah. And the streams are nothing but hard, dry, parched riverbeds carved through the desert, but are transformed. They can be transformed in a matter of hours during a downpour in the rainy season. Torrents of water overflowing their banks. And that transformation, I have read, is absolutely dramatic. Literally, overnight, the surrounding desert can be turned into a flourishing place of grass and flowers. That is the thrust of what this psalmist is saying. That's his prayer. He knows that if God can physically transform the dryness of the desert ditches into overflowing streams of life and beauty, he can do the same thing spiritually for your soul and mine and for those people that are without Christ. Overnight it can happen. He knows that our joy can be restored that dramatically that we, as well as a multitude of others in this world, can be delivered from captivity. And his desire is for the exiles to come home. In abundance, for joy to be restored. And I'll ask you again before we wrap this up, is that your joy? Is that your desire? Is that your prayer? Is that your focus? Is it mine? Shouldn't we long for these empty seats to be filled? You say, well, the government's not letting us fill them. Baloney. They need to be filled. 
Souls need to come to Christ. And we long for that not for the sake of numbers, right? But for the sake of Christ's kingdom. Remember, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner come home than about 99 persons who need no repentance. That joy can be our joy. Listen, there's no fine print in God's word. He's totally up front with us. Don't you see that? Sometimes, many times, there are tears. Life on this side of eternity is fraught with pain. There are discouraging times, agony over sin, tears shed over souls, weeping over hard-heartedness, disappointment and betrayal, persecution, poverty, rejection, abandonment. Sounds like a bleak picture, doesn't it? Characteristically, you know, we try to eliminate these things that hurt us. We avoid confrontation. We take pills for pain. We hold back from taking risks. We refuse to sacrifice. Resist deep relationships because we might get hurt and run from responsibility. And all the while, immersing ourselves in, in entertainment and indulging our passions in an endless, fruitless pursuit of personal happiness. That avoidance has even entered into the church. We don't want to sow in tears, so we don't sow. We don't like to plow hard ground, so we don't plant. It's too much work. Is there any wonder there's no joy? Many times joy comes on the other side of tears. Weeping may last for the night, the psalmist says, but a shout of joy comes in the morning. Amen? Joy that is now available. Now available. Friends, every single moment of every single day, you and I have the chance to go against the tide of this cynical world. And Lord knows, um, and I'm just confessing to you, I fight the pull of cynicism every single day. It's getting strong. But I know that Christ is the victor. And I've got to hold on to that with all I'm worth. If Jesus lives in us and we live in him, we have the chance to choose joy. To live in the sphere of God's amazing grace. As one man wrote, every thought I have, it can be cynical or joyful. Every word I speak, it can be cynical or joyful. Every action can be cynical or joyful. People who have come to know the joy of God do not deny the darkness. But they choose not to live in it. What are you going to choose? What are you going to choose? Let's pray. Father, you've given us a choice. You've given us Jesus. You've given us the opportunity to experience full joy in him. I pray, Lord God, that you would just renew us, revive us, pour forth that joy into us, Lord God, this, right now, in this moment, that we may walk from this place and be able to share that joy with those around us that are so downcast. Our souls should not be downcast because we have the indwelling Spirit of God living there. While we experience trials in this world, we recognize that you have overcome it. And because of our relationship with you, we can overcome it, as the Bible says, because of our faith. Help us walk in that faith.
in the dust of our rabbi, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name that I pray. Amen.